You're listening to Enclave Community Church. For more information about Enclave, please visit us online at enclavecc.com. So the scripture reading is Malachi 2, 17 through 3, 5. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who trust, who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Um, for this beautiful um, summer day, and thank you for these families and children and the commitment that they're making to you. We thank you for your word and for Andrew. We pray that you would speak through him um, as he brings your word and truth to us and that our hearts would be open. In Jesus' name, amen. Injustice, when we talk about injustice, we're talking about things that we see in the world that isn't right. So when we learn about or when we experience racism, for example, that is not right. That's an injustice. Or when the Watts, a missionary family that we have that that work in Nepal, when they tell us about the sex trafficking that they are coming against, that's an example of injustice. That's not right. But even maybe closer to your own family, like when you are mistreated by your own family or by your friends or by your coworkers, you're not treated fairly. Those are examples of injustice. It's, it's not right. And it's kind of good for us to become sensitive to and even sort of troubled and bothered by injustice. But what can sometimes happen when we experience or we see injustice is we can begin to blame that on God. We can begin to think that maybe God is not just. And if you have ever felt that feeling or thought that thought, then you have something in common with the people who are receiving the message of the book of Malachi because that exact thought is addressed in this book. So today we're going to talk a little bit about God and justice. We have been walking through 
um, the book of Malachi, and we have been saying that the book of Malachi is written to exiles who are coming out of Babylon, who are being brought to Jerusalem. These are people who have rebuilt the temple in a sacrificial system, but they have also begun to believe wrong ideas about God. Now, Malachi is written to address some of those wrong ideas about God through six disputes that happen throughout the book. The first wrong idea about God that we saw was that they believed that maybe God didn't love them, right? And that's addressed in the first dispute. Then they began to believe, well, maybe God isn't worth honoring, right? And that's kind of built on the first wrong idea. If God doesn't love us, is he really worth honoring with our sacrifices? Is he really worth honoring with our marriages? So that is addressed in the second and third dispute. But today we're going to talk about a third wrong idea. And that wrong idea that the people of Malachi, in, in his day, they believe maybe God is not just. And that is addressed in the fourth dispute that begins in this way, beginning in verse 14. There we read, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So just like us, the people of Israel, they have seen and experienced injustice in the world. Think about Psalm 73, for example. They have seen the wicked prosper, and they've seen godly people have a hard time. And as a result, they decided to take their seat on the judge bench and in the witness stand, both, and make the determination, perhaps God is unjust. Maybe he prefers evil, or maybe he is just absent or unavailable, or uncaring. Now, what, what this passage tells us in verse 17, that those words that they were saying and thinking about God, they wearied God. They, they kind of wore God out because, well, one, they're untrue, they're not fair, and they're also being spoken by people who are not right themselves, right? So it wearied God. And so what we're going to look at in today's passage is God's response to their question slash accusation, where is the God of justice? And the basic answer given in our passage is, he's coming. Where's the God of justice? He's coming. He's coming to his temple. That's our first point this morning. He's coming as refiner. That's our second point this morning. And he's coming as judge. He's coming at, to his temple. That's our first point. So in response to the question, where is the God of justice? Yahweh says this, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3. Behold, and there's a translated, untranslated me there. So he's, he's saying, behold me. Like, where's the God of justice? Watch me. That's what he starts off with. Watch me. I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? And then skipping down to verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. Now I want to ask two questions of these verses. I want to ask, okay, who exactly is coming? Who is coming? And when is he coming? 
right? I, I want to ask who first because it seems like there's several entities in these verses. First, there is the Lord of hosts, and that's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, all caps. Now, when the Bible says Lord in all caps, who are we talking about? Yahweh, right? Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, means he is the Lord of the heavenly armies. So, and he's the one who's speaking, right? What does it say? Behold, he is coming at the end of verse one, says the Lord of hosts. So Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, is the one who is speaking. And he talks about a messenger that he sends before him, before he comes in judgment. So there is Yahweh, that's one entity. Then there is Yahweh's messenger. Now Jesus identifies the messenger that Yahweh sends as John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11, verse 10, when he quotes this passage. So we have Yahweh, we have Yahweh's messenger, who Jesus says is John the Baptist, but then we have this other entity, and here we have an example that Matthew pointed out a couple of weeks ago when he talked about Hebrew parallelism, where oftentimes in Hebrew poetry, or even in just Hebrew prose sometimes, he will say two lines that refer to the same thing in a fuller kind of way. It's a way of like, like having a more robust picture about something. So each of these lines, I believe, refer to one person. So let me read verse 1 again. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That's, Yahweh says that. And the Lord, lowercase o-r-d, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. That's one line. Here's the second line. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming. Right. So you see the parallelism there? So that, that refers to one person. Who is this Lord, lowercase o-r-d, right? So if you, if you look throughout the scriptures, you begin to understand that this is the Messiah. This is the Christ who is to come. So just like in Psalm 110, remember that psalm? Where there is a Lord, lowercase o-r-d, who sits at the right hand of the Lord, all caps, right? There's a Lord who sits at the Lord's right hand. And there's a lot of overlap with reference to their identity, right? Because the Messiah is a divine Messiah. And Jesus brings that out in, in the Gospels. So you see what's happening in these verses. Yahweh is sending a messenger, a forerunner, before his Messiah. And then the Messiah is going to come into his temple. He's going to execute a covenant which will make the world right. So that's what he's saying in these verses. So that's who's coming. But when is he coming? This is, comes to us in verse 2. There it says, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? The day of his coming. Throughout the Bible, there is a specific day that is referenced at multiple times. Sometimes it's called the day. Sometimes it's called that day. Sometimes it's called the day of the Lord. But in each case, when we're talking about a day of the Lord or the day of the Lord, it is a time when God intervenes in human history to bring salvation through judgment that brings about a new reality. Every time we talk about the day of the Lord, that's what's happening. And we see this dotted throughout the Old Testament. And there's an example of it that the recipients of Malachi have just experienced. Right? God came and brought salvation to the people of Israel 
by judging Babylon and brought them back to the promised land through a lowercase c, Christ in Cyrus, right? The king of Medo-Persia. The king of Medo-Persia was used by God and is called a lowercase c, Christ in Isaiah 45.1. He delivers the people of Israel out of their captivity to Babylon, echoes of Exodus, right? And brings them back into the promised land. So God brought salvation through judgment. And this is predicted in Isaiah chapter 13, which calls that event the day of the Lord. Right? So in each case, we look in the Old Testament, there's these days of the Lord. But each one is patterned after and looks forward to a final day of the Lord. And the final day of the Lord, Yahweh sends his Messiah and brings salvation through judgment, and that issues forth in a new reality. So when you think about what we're talking about here, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears, that is actually going to be fulfilled when Jesus comes back again. When God comes through a Messiah and brings salvation through judgment, that is coupled in the New Testament with Jesus' second coming. So you see that in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2, Mark chapter 13. Also in 2 Peter chapter 3, which is an interesting one, because there you have the picture of the world being caught up in flames, which we will see flames later in, in our passage. So Malachi chapter 3 verse 2 is ultimately fulfilled when Jesus comes again at the second coming. But what's interesting and really cool, about because God exists outside of time, and all these days of the Lord are sort of like stacked on one another as sort of like these transparencies that look, you, you look through them and you see the final day of the Lord. They're all patterned after that day. There are typological fulfillments of the day of the Lord as you get closer. And there's a specific case in which this is typologically fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Do you guys remember? Jesus in Mark chapter 11 comes into his temple. Right, And he overturns the money changers. He, he takes away everybody buying and selling, has to leave the court of the Gentiles because that's not what the court of the Gentiles was for. It was for Gentiles to come into contact with Yahweh. So he, he judges the temple and he casts out the money changers. right? And so that foreshadows what is going to come in the end. And do you remember what the Jewish leaders ask Jesus after he does that? They say, by what authority do you do these things, right? Because you're acting like you own the place. Guess why? He does, he does own the place, right? It's, it's his temple. Like this would be like if we went into the, well, I guess people did do this. But if we went into the, the, the White House or uh, some big building and we started like kicking things out, like would that be a big deal? Like would there be trials after that and stuff like that? Yes. Right? It'd be a big deal if you were to do that. This is a big deal for Jesus. This is an even bigger deal because the temple is the, cent the religious, political center of the entire nation for centuries. It's their most, it's like, it's the emblem of what it means to be an Israelite. And he's going into that building and he's tearing it up. By what authority can you do this? Well, because it's, it's my temple. Right? So he typologically fulfills what Malachi 3.2 is saying there, but it also foreshadows what he will do in the future when he comes again. So when we ask the question, where is the God of justice? The God of justice is coming through his Messiah 
and he's going to make the whole world, which was supposed to be a garden temple, the whole world was, he's going to make the whole world right. So just because justice isn't being executed immediately now doesn't mean that it's not coming. But the real question for Israel and the real question for us is do we really know what we're asking for when we ask God to come in his justice? And that's our second point. He is coming as a refiner. Look back at verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? You know, sometimes when we're asking God to bring his justice, we're talking about other people, right? We're talking about other people. But, but if he comes to make the world right, no one's going to be left unscathed, right? Because he goes on to say, for he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap, the Messiah is. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So the point that he's making is if anyone is going to live a holy and righteous life, then God is going to have to take the ungodly impurities out of them. That's the only way that, that, that that's possible. And so Malachi uses two images to, talk, to make that point. First, he uses the image of a refiner's fire. So a refiner is someone who uses intense heat. He applies intense heat to precious metals such as gold and silver so that the impurities in those metals rise to the top and those impurities can be scraped off so that you're left with something pure. So when the refiner does his job, right, it's both a refining process for precious metals, but it's also testing the genuineness of the precious metals present. You understand that? So it's testing or showing the genuineness, but it's also refining both at the same time. This is how the Apostle Peter talks about it. He's speaking to Christians, and he says it in this way, 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in the latter part of verse 6. You have been grieved by various trials, he says to Christians, so that there's a purpose, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus, at the appearing of Jesus, the last day of the Lord. When Jesus comes again, you will be shown to be pure. Because there's a weird... We said that God works outside of time and inside time, right? There's, a, there's this weird matrixy thing that happens when you become a Christian where you belong to two worlds. You, you, you belong, like you are right now, if you belong to Jesus, you sit in the heavenly places right now. You're also seated in this room, that's true, but you're also seated in the heavenly places. And we are called the children of the day. And so there's a sense in which Jesus coming into his temple is currently happening because the church is what? His temple. Right? And so what the Messiah does is he uses the fiery trials of life to both refine and test and show the genuineness of your faith. Now that means a couple of things regard to our, our suffering, doesn't it? It means our suffering is real. Right? You know, is anybody tired of hearing Christians talk about suffering as if it isn't real? 
Right? <clears throat> Our suffering is real, and it has a purpose. It, it is meant to refine us. It's meant to, it's meant to test us. Right? So that's one image that he uses, a refiner's fire. But he also uses the image of a fuller's soap. And, and the idea here is that Christ is washing or cleansing his church or his bride. So if, if you're a bride, you don't want to show up at your wedding day covered in mud with your dress covered in mud, right? That wouldn't be suitable for the occasion, and plus you wouldn't want it. So Jesus, as the groom, in his love, he cleanses his bride with his blood in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, but also through the cleansing of the water of the word in Ephesians chapter 5, 26 and 27, so that, he says, quote, in order to present the church to himself, Jesus, in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So where is the God of justice? He is coming as fire. He's coming as soap. Right? He's going to make the world right. And if you submit to his loving reign now, then he's going to refine you from the inside out through fiery trials. But if you reject him, right, that fire will come to you in a different way. Right? If, if you are united, you're not united to Jesus, who is like really the only precious metal that there is, when, when, the, when the fires come, there's not going to be anything left, right, metaphorically speaking. I think it was N.T. Wright that said, you know, somebody asked him, is the fire in the Bible metaphorical? And he said, yes, it is metaphorical for something way worse than fire. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, Whoo, all right, that, that's serious, right? And so it's kind of like you're in this position, will I submit to God's refinement or will I experience his judgment? And that's the choice that we make with, with Jesus. So where's the God of justice? He's coming to his temple. He's coming as a refiner. But third, he is coming as judge. Look in verse five. There it says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. You can translate that, or immigrant. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So in other words, when God comes, he's going to come as the judge in the judgment seat and as the witness in the witness box. So when he sees Israel in those places, he says, get out of my seats. I'm going to come as the judge and the witness. Now, what if you face a judge who's also the witness? <laughs> you know, it's like, whoa. All right, because he's the one that, that's in charge. And he will come against, in his judgment, anyone who sees God or sees people as a means to an end or an obstacle to thrust out of the way in order to promote their own agenda. Because think about the list that we're talking about. Who are sorcerers? There are those who want to understand different words, right actions in order to manipulate the spiritual realm so that things go well for them. Right? And, you know, maybe we say, well, none of us here are sorcerers. I mean, do you know any sorcerers? People who are like, I am a sorcerer. Like, no, we don't know any. But 
how many of us relate to God in that way? Let me just use the right religious language. Let me just do the right religious you know, actions, and then maybe I can manipulate God, and then things will go right in my life. God is coming in judgment for those who see him as a tool to be used, as a means to an end. He's coming in judgment against these others in the list, adulterers, liars, oppressors. Right? Who are they? They are those who view people as either a means to an end or an obstacle in the way that they have to thrust aside. They're too needy in their eyes, let's say, regarding the widow, regarding the orphan, regarding the immigrant. They're taking my job away, or however you think of it. They are obstacles in the way. I need to thrust them aside so that I can promote my agenda. Right? God is coming in judgment against anyone who sees him or other people as a means to an end or an obstacle to thrust out of the way because it is evidence that they do not fear God, that they don't love God. And if that's you, if that's me, then we are under the threat of judgment if we will not repent. Because how else is God going to create a good world? Is the world going to be a good world if there's people who use one another in it? Or, or see people as obstacles in it? Right, so if we don't, right, there's a lot of impurities in me. If God doesn't refine me, I won't be fit for the new world. And so the choice with Jesus is, will you come to me to be refined? Or will you face my judgment? Because I will create a good world. Right? And so the question isn't so much, is it, is God a God of justice? The real question comes in verse 2, where it says this, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? That's the real question. Who can endure it when he comes? Now, I was talking uh, to Jacob uh, just before the service because he preached on a, a passage a couple of Fridays ago, and it was really great. You can go to him for a link or something. But where there's a passage in Paul where God addresses both sides of this question. Where is the God of justice? How can we stand before the God of justice? How can we be right with God? By the way, righteousness and justice in the Bible, they're, they're the exact same word. Right? Because justice is doing what's right. right. So how can we be in right standing before God when the God of justice is coming? How can that happen? Right? And the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, answers this question answers both of them together. I'm not going to go through all the details like Jacob did. You could see him for that. But I just want to read through it and make a couple of comments along the way to see how he answers both questions at the same time. So this is Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Now when you hear righteousness of God, think the just salvation of God. Right? God's salvation through justice. The righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been shown apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. They pointed forward to it. The righteousness of God through, and you could translate this either faith in Jesus Christ or the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And just depending on what day of the week, I'll go either direction. 
But let's say it's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ today. Like he shows his justice through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. For all who believe, for there is no distinction. Right? And in the book of Romans, the big thing there is Jew or Gentile. And, and Paul's saying, no, everyone. For everyone who believes, they will experience the salvation through justice. Why? In the same way, why? Verse 23, for all Jew and Gentile, all of us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now let's talk, let's stop for a second and talk about this word justified. Right? We said righteous and justice, same word. This has the same root, right? How do we stand before a just God? Only those who are justified. Those who are declared righteous by grace through faith in Jesus Christ because what he did on the cross. He goes on in verse 25. Whom God put forward, you could translate that, uh, uh, displayed publicly. On the cross, Jesus was displayed publicly. God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show like we said manifested before, now we're going to say the same thing again. Paul's saying the same thing. To show God's righteousness or his justice. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And so think about the situation of the people of Malachi. How come God is letting all these sins happen? Right? And Paul is saying, he acknowledges it. Yeah, God passed over former sins. But not now. It was to show his righteousness, again in verse 26, or his justice at the present time so that he might be just, the God of justice, and the justifier, the one who, who declares people righteous, of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the cross makes it possible for the God of justice to come and for us to be able to stand when he comes. So the answer to the question in verse 2 of Malachi 3, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? The answer is the one who is in Christ. You receive his death on the cross as your death. You receive his resurrection as your life. So when we ask the question, where is the God of, God, of justice? He has come. And he is coming. The first time he came, he died for those who belong to him, who he will refine so that we no longer look at God as a means to an end or an obstacle in the way. We no longer look at people that way. He comes the first time to make us right, but then the second time he comes and makes the world right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross where your perfect justice and your perfect love met. Lord, please open our eyes to the beauty of what you have done in the gospel. The beauty that you've, of what you have done through Jesus Christ, our Messiah. And Lord, do whatever work that's necessary to come into the temple of my life. To come into the temple of of the lives of those in this room 
to refine us. We don't want to look at you as a, as a means to an end. We, we want to enjoy you, encounter you, express you through Jesus. For that, Lord, we need your spirit to come and change us from the inside out. We pray this in Jesus' name.